listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. In this Zoom age, okay, I'm looking at my guest. And my guest happens to be a very handsome man. I remember when he came in studio six years ago, I was like, damn, he's a handsome man. And he hasn't aged. Now, me, I'm looking in Zoom. My eyes gotten lazier in six years. I've added a chin. And, and I'm sitting there. And, you know, it just it irritates you. But what can I do? That's why he's a Hollywood leading man. And I'm just a guy doing a podcast. And my guest is a very talented Gregory Harrison. How you doing, Greg? I'm good, Steve. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm, I'm six years older and I'm feeling it, but I, if you don't see it, then good, I'll take it. Now, how are you dealing with, with the COVID? Are you, I mean, as an actor, because the, the industry, I think it's starting to pick up more now, but you've constantly worked for so many years. Does it, does it tax on you where you, you're used to that grind, but now all of a sudden you're going, I don't have to worry about this. It's not a matter of not not worrying about it. It's it's you know it's the longest layoff I've had in my what is it now forty five years I've been working and uh, it's it's frustrating. You know, I mean, I I, I I I guess there are blessings in every curse. You know, I've spent time with the wife <laughs> that I haven't spent uh, nearly this much time with in the in the thirty seven years thirty eight years now that we've been married. Um, probably half of that I've been on location. But, uh, you know, we, I haven't left the house other than, you know, to take a walk with her uh, in six months. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. Five months, five and a half months. It's crazy. But but uh, I'm doing fine. You, you know? know, it is weird. You know, you said you haven't left the house. You know, for us, I mean, I'll go and my Joanne goes to the office, but it's just her, her boss. And like the whole office is empty except them and another like them, well, someone on the first floor and them on the third floor. But for us, you know, besides me going to, you know, food shopping and stuff like that, I haven't been out. And we've gone to a friend's house once or twice, which we socially distanced. But for, you know, anyone who has a background in entertainment, it's it's really weird because we're so used to socialize with people that it throws you off at first. I mean, how were you like waking up going, I got to be somewhere in the beginning or how did you handle it? It, it, it was really hard. It's still really, it's getting harder actually, because uh, other countries are starting to film. There's starting to be uh, work going around, you know, and they're trying to do it here, sort of like they're opening schools here, you know, and then you're hearing about, you know, 500 people caught COVID last week in this college or that college. And, and uh, so I'm hearing about Canada has lots of work starting to go and, uh, but if, I, if I'm going to go up there and I, I have a couple of films that are that want to use me up there, but it's 14 days of sitting in a hotel room quarantining, you know, and it's like I feel like I've been quarantining, isolating, you know, for five, six months. And uh, and the idea of being stuck in a hotel room is, is very disturbing to me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm dying to get out. I'm a I'm a an outdoor not i always have been you know i grew up on an island and i, I surf and i golf and, and hike and mountain bike and i mean i do a little of that you know I've, I've been playing golf on mondays with the same four guys we never get closer than 20 feet to each other um every monday i'll play one round of golf and that's a huge relief but that's it i haven't been inside a building 
other than a doctor's office, which are really, you know, strict and relatively safe, I haven't been inside a building in five and a half months other than my own house. It's it's just weird. It's just the weirdest year of my whole life. I know I don't remember anything ever resembling it in my seventy years. I just turned seventy, and uh, and it's just it's just uh, befuddling to say the least. Now I got to ask you. I saw you post on Facebook about your surfing trip got canceled. Um, I want to hear about your surfing because I know you grew up in Catalina, and if I remember, if I recall, your father was a uh, a boat captain, I believe. Exactly. Good memory. Now, so he was the captain of the glass bottom boat over in Catalina his whole life. Now, tell people what that is because people don't know. Well, Catalina Island, for those who aren't familiar with it, is a little island off the coast of Los Angeles. But 20, there's a song from long ago, 26 miles across the sea, Santa Catalina is awaiting for me. And uh, that's the island I grew up on. My grandfather went there from Ireland in uh, 1903, started the glass bottom boats and uh, ran them his whole life. Uh, my father took them over, ran them for 55 years, and I was supposed to take over the glass bottom boats uh, after him. He'd be a third generation, you know, uh, Islander and, and boat captain. They shot a movie, and when I was 15 in 1965, they shot a movie on my dad's boat called The Glass Bottom Boat with <laughs> Doris Day and Rod Taylor. And uh, and I watched them film it. I mean, it was like the one time they shot a movie on Catalina, which is often used as a location, um, where they couldn't get get rid of me. They couldn't get me off the set because my father owned the boat. My father was captaining the boat while they were shooting. So I got to stand next to the camera, and I watched them do it. I watched Doris Day and Rod Taylor doing lines, and they'd screw up, and Doris would go, ah, you know, bleep, bleep. I, I, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And it was it was an epiphany for me because I went, oh, oh, they're not magicians. I thought it was some kind of magic involved in being an actor. <laughs> and I went, oh, they just they can screw up. They just keep doing it until they get it right. It's like It's like a complicated puzzle. You know, you make all these little pieces, and then you fit them all together, and then you got your movie. And there's nothing in that that I can't learn or do. And I literally decided on that day, that's going to be my future. And I was 15. I didn't start working till I was 25, but I, I had to go through, finish high school, go through the army for three years, and 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 uh, uh, be a helicopter medic. And then I got to I, I went to Hollywood on the GI Bill and studied for five years, and then I got my first job. But literally 10 years before I started my career, I knew that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. But what's it like growing up on the island? Because it's not like like Manhattan's an island. You take a tunnel. You know, there's different things. Like yeah. Catalina, it's, it's not like, yep. hey, what is it like? Did you ever get off as a kid? Or did, did you leave? Or was that a pain in the ass just to sit there and go, it's going to take, I have to get on a boat. We have to go to the thing and this. And then you end up in, what, Long, long, uh, long Beach or wherever. Long. Yeah, yeah. Well, San Pedro Bay, Long Beach, L.A. Harbor. Um, you know, it, 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 it was really interesting because it, it is a, it's a psychological switch. It was, it was so uh, protective. The ocean around that island was a moat that protected me from the big, weird, strange world until I was about 15. And literally overnight, I remember thinking, this is like a prison wall keeping me from the world I'm ready to enter. 
and that was why the last three years of school, everybody wanted to be a, a you know, on the varsity because we played baseball, basketball, track, and you'd literally get on a on a seaplane in Avalon Bay, take off in the bay uh, with your team, and fly to the mainland on a Friday evening. Play your game that night, maybe the next day, stay in a hotel, an actual hotel, and uh, and then fly back on Sunday morning. And and then in the inter- intervening weekends, they would fly to the island to play us, which all the teams in California love. So I, I, that was the only time I could get to the mainland. Was to, we called it the mainland? We called it Overtown. Oh. Overtown, twenty six <laughs> miles over there. Overtown. You could see it from our from from. There was a lookout point, Three Palms, where it was a makeout spot. But you could see the mainland. You could see the cars weaving around Palos Verdes Point, and and uh, dream about what the real world might be like. You know, it's, it's and, just. And it, but it was wonderful. It was a wonderful, idyllic place to grow up. Now, when you went to Hollywood, what made you decide to start studying? Because so many people just go to Hollywood and they think, oh, I can do this. What made you sit there and decide that you wanted to take classes and actually learn the craft? Well, you know, because of my, I was always interested in performing, and I'd been performing in variety shows in elementary school in town. You know, in my little town of 1,200 people. But I, I always was comfortable performing, and I, I, I was thrilled getting all the attention and all that. So uh, I'd had some experience with it. I'd, I'd done the lead in the school plays and, you know, Our Town. I'd done Our Town. And and uh, I kind of knew that if you wanted to be in this elite group of people who actually made a living doing this, you know, whatever it was I chose to do. First, I wanted to be Mickey Mantle for the first 10 years of my life. And then and then whatever you chose to do, you had to work hard. You know, I, I before Malcolm Gladwell, I knew that you had to put your 10,000 hours in to, to, to excel at something. And uh, I was I, I loved I loved those years in Hollywood, pounding the pavement, living on nothing eating popcorn for breakfast, lunch, and dinner half the time just to fill my stomach, you know. But it was so exciting every day to get up and go, today might be the day I learned something really valuable. I might find a gem today in my in my studies, you know. And uh, most days you didn't, but, but every now and then you'd leap to another plateau. And I knew that eventually, I knew I was there for the long term. I knew I wasn't going anywhere. It was just a matter of time. And... Um, and, you know, within two or three years of, of arriving in Hollywood and starting my studying, everybody else knew that in my workshops and stuff that, oh, yeah, Harrison's going to, he'll, he'll get a career. Because I was so uh, focused and determined. And I had some natural abilities, I think, but I also was just unstoppable. I just was determined. How? And, and, and it didn't scare me. It didn't scare me. One of the reasons it didn't scare me, this is something that nobody's ever really heard me talk about. I was a, a, a medic in the Army. I'd spent my three years during Vietnam, but I was a conscientious objector. And, and I had no religion. And they didn't recognize conscientious objection without religion. So for three years, I'd spent time, all three years, fighting to get recognized as a CO. And eventually I won. 
And it was something that had been fought over since the writing of the Constitution. And I was the guy who won it, who won the, the right to be recognized as uh, whose conscience was recognized to be nonviolent and honored by saying, OK, well, then you don't have to carry a weapon and you don't have to fight in a, you know, you don't have to kill people, which is why I'd become a medic in the first place. Um, so when I got out of the army and I had won this thing and changed the army regulations and had gone all the way to the Supreme Court, and it was like people, I wasn't even 21 yet. And I'd gotten out of the army after all of that, being imprisoned in a little cell for two years, allowed out only to work, to fly in the helicopters and pick up patients. And, and I had gone through the, the lowest ebb of my life and won, come out on top. So when I, when I came back to Catalina at 20 and said, okay, I'm heading to Hollywood, people were going, do you understand the odds in Hollywood? Do you understand how hard Hollywood is? I, I said, I don't, I'm not afraid of, of odds. You know, I'm not afraid of Hollywood. I, I, I had beaten some big odds already. And it just made me realize that I, it's, you just have to stick to it and you win. If you stick to it, you'll win. And so I went to Hollywood with that frame of mind, and, and, uh, and that's the way it worked out. You know, it took a few years. Now, how long, how long did it start till you started working? I mean, what you know, what was your process? Because you know, you end up on Trapper John. You were on a few shows before that, and you know, Trapper John just blew. People don't understand. I try to explain to people how big TV was back then. It's like now there's there's actors. When actors got work, there was a lot. I mean, it was. The odds were a lot greater just for the fact that now every channel, this channel, this. But then people forget, like when you tell them, no, everybody watched a show. Even if like a TV show wasn't that popular, you know, everyone still, I mean, people would watch it because some didn't like it. How did you end up getting to Trapper John? What was, was it a quick, was it a quick process? I know you did a Logan's Run and a few other things, but how long, yeah. what, what was it? Was it very quick for you? It was, I guess, in the, looking back on it, it, it was relatively quick, but no, you know, I started, I, the first thing, somebody came to the acting workshop I was in in 1975. These two guys, uh, Don Coscarelli and Craig Mitchell, their father had given them a hundred grand to make a movie and they, it was going to be non-union for sure. And they just were looking around Hollywood and they'd go to each acting school and say, who's your best actors in the, in the, in your school? And who aren't in the union, you know? And uh, my acting instructor, Estelle Harmon, at the, at the time, it was Estelle Harmon Actors Workshop, said, uh, okay, I'll show you. And I, I, she, she brought him to a class, and I did a scene that I had already prepared, you know. Not for that, I did it for the class. It was just me working on stuff. And they saw it, and they came right to me and said, we want you to star in a movie for us, a feature we're going to make for a year. We're going to shoot it on weekends. And we're going to rent the equipment on a Friday night and bring it back on a Monday morning and pay for one day's rental. And we're going to shoot nonstop from Friday night till Monday morning, no resting. And then we'll collapse for the week and do it again the next weekend. We're going to do that for about a year and we can't pay you, but, uh, but to get a lot of good film on yourself. And I didn't have anything else going on. You know, I was, I'd created a window washing route on, on uh, Las, on La Brea and Santa Monica Boulevards, where I would wash windows in the middle of the night with a bucket and a squeegee, you know, and I just do ground floors and every 
once a month I'd go on the inside, do it during the day, and go inside and wash them from the inside. So I was making enough money to survive on. And uh, I said, sure. So for a year, we shot this movie called Jim, the World's Greatest, about a kid in high school who's raising his little brother and his father's an alcoholic. We shot it. They, they finished it. It was okay. It, it was raw. They were 18 years old, these two guys. And they'd won a Super 8 movie uh, contest. And uh, and Charles Champlin had been one of the judges. And he was the Times head Times film critic. So he said, well, if you ever do a movie, show it to, you know, give me a call. I'll, I'll, check, I'll check it out. So they called him. He checked it out. He loved it. He wrote an article in the front of the, of the L.A. Times calendar section raving about the movie, about me. And I got a phone call like that night, that Sunday night from from an agent who said, are you represented? I said, no. And she said, would you like to be? Yeah. Hell yeah. Sure I would. So so I suddenly had like, it was Joan Scott at Writers and Artists Agency. And it was like, she was one of the biggest agents in town and and uh, highly regarded. And, and so I suddenly I was starring in a movie that got a great review, had an agent, and Universal, Sid Sheinberg was running Universal at the time, and he apparently had grown up with a younger brother and a father who was an alcoholic. So he said, I love this movie. And and they bought the film, reshot half of it because it was so bad. I mean, it was not a bad movie, but it was just, you know, it was just uh, 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 not cinematically... Uh, of the quality that, that they would want. So we reshot half. So that got me in the union. So that was another catch 22. I, I leapt the fence with that one, but this was after five years in Hollywood. So literally it was like an overnight thing. I had no money in the bank and, and I'd been living on, on scraps for the last year while shooting, but I was a movie star. They released it in Westwood. I got an agent, I got in the union and I was only going in on leading men after that. And I was 26 years old. And uh, and that that was how I got my start. Then I went and did another independent film at Paramount that was a thesis for a cinema student at, at, uh, at UCLA, or at USC. We shot it on, on Fraternity Row, and the movie was called Fraternity Row. And that did well, as, in the, as indies go. And... Uh, and then I was, I just started doing guest episodics, did MASH, I did Barnaby Jones, I did all those shows. And suddenly I did Centennial, which was like the biggest miniseries of all time. And I was the central role of Levi Zent and uh, surrounded by every decent actor in Hollywood. We had hundreds in, in our, in, it was 25 hours long. And, uh, and then that led to Logan's Run, starring in it. Six months after the movie came out, we had the series on the air, and uh, that only lasted a season because Star Wars came out and reinvented science fiction uh, worldwide, and we, we suddenly looked like one of those old uh, TV series with the cigarette smoke coming out of the back of the rocket ship, <laughs> and then and then uh, that led to some more TV movies, and, and like within that year, and then Trapper John, and Trapper John was a huge hit. On in Carol Burnett's time slot, she just left her show at 10 o'clock on Sunday nights. Biggest audience of the week. It's like a can't-lose slot, you know? And, uh, and we did great and ran for, ran for eight years. How, how is your life changing? Because, you know, it's, it's not like 
you're just some young punk off the boat, you know, off the bus. You know, you're someone who was in the army. You you studied, so you actually, you know, it's like a, a minor league baseball player who actually goes through the system, and becomes pro. You put in your time. You you got you worked on your chops. But what is it like when you go from basically watching Windows when a movie comes out that breaks your career to a few points later. I mean, when you all of a sudden are getting recognized and, and you have money, what, how does that change you as an individual? You know, you, 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 I'd love to say it didn't change me. You know, I've always, always been the same guy. And I always tried to be the same guy. I tried to be the humble guy from Catalina who didn't wear hard shoes till he was 15, you know. But, but of course it changes you and, and you get spoiled. I mean, the moment you start to be successful is the first moment in Hollywood that anybody offers you anything for free. You know, so when, when every, all these starving, desperate people are roaming around Hollywood, uh, unemployed, seeking stardom, and nobody's helping them with anything, and then all of a sudden you get a hit show and you can't buy a pair of shoes. Everybody's, every company on earth is offering you new shoes and clothes and and stuff you know now it's computers and and you know everything is free and you start you can't help but believe oh i must be worth that i must be and so you you you're you change you know you do change and i i i think that's why people value so much the friends that they had and try to keep the friends they had before they were somebody quote unquote because those people at least are have, are much more likely to to tell them when they're full of, you know what, you know, right, and 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 be and provide a real mirror to say this is who you are becoming. You want to be this person, you know. So I've I've got some dear friends that I've hung on to really tight that I knew when I was struggling in Hollywood, and that I knew in Catalina. I'm still very tight with a few friends that I grew up with in Catalina. But for you, there's a difference. Like, you know, you weren't Vic Tabak walking around. You were Gregory Harrison with a poster. I mean, what I mean, what is it like? Because you were, you call it a heartthrob. I mean, what is that like? How do, When you walk down the street and it's not like people go, oh, yeah, there's the guy who plays Mel on Alice. It's like, oh, there's the, the, the hunk, because that was the big term back then, hunk, which has disappeared. But, I mean, how does that affect you? Just, you ha- it has to go to your head when women must just throw themselves at you. Well, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, but this was the 70s. <laughs> you know, when when penicillin cured everything and, uh, and, and there was no AIDS. And yeah, Hollywood, acting schools, all of that, all during the time up from 1970 to 1980. Well... <laughs> was just uh, very lascivious. And and I got it all out of my system, you know? This is why at 81 I got married. It was like, okay, you know, you've experienced everything. You've had women throwing themselves at you. No one was really beyond your reach, uh, you know? Now let's try to find something substantial and someone substantial that and create a, a relationship that's got real value. And, uh, and I've been married since 1981 to Randy, Randy Oaks. How did you meet her? <laughs> a very Hollywood way. It was like the least likely lasting relationship of all time. We met on the set of uh, 
of uh, uh, Battle of the Network Stars, and and we were all dressed in spandex. She was she was in this spandex bathing suit, and I wanted to see what she looked like wet. So there was this one competition where you throw at a target and knock her in the tank. If you hit it, she falls into the water tank. And uh, Howard Cosell was hosting it, and and I said, I he said, Greg, what do you want to throw in the water? And I said, that that Randy, Randy Oaks on NBC, that 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 girl on that team, and. Uh, she got up there and she looked really good wet because I knocked it three times and put her in the water three times. And she looked good wet. I carried her out of out of the thing and put her back on the bench. And it's all on YouTube. I mean, you can see it on YouTube. And uh, that was that was the the moment. And a year later, we were married. And uh, and it's you know it's, it's a great relationship. We've had four wonderful children. Uh, almost four decades of uh, happiness together and it hasn't always been easy and uh, I haven't always been the best husband in the world and, and uh, she's pretty much been the best wife in the world but I haven't always been the best husband but I've learned and gotten better over years over the years and uh, and uh, it's a good life you know I got no regrets now I think it was on Facebook because you post a lot um, you posted about your sobriety was it 30 years recently was it yeah uh 33 years. What what made what made you decide to get sober? Because so many people you hear there's there's a definitive moment uh, that or you know, that, that moment of clarity. What you know what made you decide that said, hey, you know what, I just this is no good for me. It's a long. It's a uh, you know I don't know how much you know about sobriety and bottoming out and all that, but it's a it's a it's a long arduous process for most people to get to that point. I had about nine years of, of uh, cocaine addiction. And it didn't start out. No one starts out wanting to be an addict. You know, you're just playing. You've got money. You know, uh, I think it was Robin Williams said, cocaine is God's way of telling you you make too damn much money. <laughs> and uh, and so I, I, about four or five years into that use and abuse, I realized, oh, you're not just having fun. You're an addict. But it was another four or five years before I got desperate enough and humbled enough to be able to say, you can't fix this on your own. And those years were terrible. I mean, how Randy stayed with me, I'll never know. But uh, I was losing my, I mean, I, I quit being creative for about five years. You know, I was still working, still producing still starring in movies, but I wasn't doing anything creative. I wasn't pushing, getting better. I wasn't growing. I was, you know, I, w I was just barely hanging on to that stuff. And my marriage was falling apart. My health was certainly falling apart. I was, my professionalism was falling apart. I, I, I was directing episodes of Trapper John and I would show up. I wouldn't show up. And I was the director and I would, I'd get a phone call at seven in the morning. Um, Greg, are you, are you coming in today? And I, you know, I would have gone to sleep two hours earlier because I was up all night planning my shots and stuff, but doing, doing toots all night long. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just Randy eventually, 
you know, we were, I would stay in my office. I had an office in the house and I'd just stay in there and sleep on the couch every night. She said, she, every, she told me later, she said, I just was waiting to see how you were going to die. You either hang yourself or you die of a heart attack, one or the other. I knew every morning when I'd go in there and walk, open the door and walk in and look that I'd see you in one position or another. And somehow I didn't. Then we, we had a, a baby uh, that was about a year and a half old at that point. Emma, my oldest child, now she's 34, uh, 33. And uh, and when I was using, which was about three-fourths of the day, uh, take an hour or two after I woke up before I'd do my first snort of the day, she wouldn't come to me. She'd be all over me, climbing on me, hugging me, wanting me to hold her until I'd walked into my office and did my first little snort of blow and I walked back out and said come here Em and she would just look at me like I was somebody different she wouldn't come to me and that that was the final straw that that was the heartbreaker that it wasn't the marriage falling apart or the career falling apart or the health falling apart becoming a liar and a deceiver and self-loathing it wasn't all of that it was my daughter not willing to come to me when I was using that put me on a phone call to the Betty Ford Center. And uh, eventually, you know, within a couple of weeks of that, uh, driving down there and doing about three grams below on the trip down as an adios. And I haven't used again since, you know, since September, August, September of uh, 1987. That's awesome. Now, do you think, you know, with people with addictions, do you think that right now, because people are penned up in their house, do you think it's a really hard time for them? I mean, and I don't know if people can actually go to meetings, but I mean, how do you think this deals with a psyche of someone who is, you know, who especially is one who recently, let's say in a year or two years, was sober. I mean, have you you probably talked to a lot of people in the community. How is this affecting people? Is it is it as bad as we may think it might be? It's always worse than anybody thinks it might be. There's so many people addicted out there that one don't know they're addicted, and two are addicted but can't like I was. They they just can't bring themselves to admit it or seek help. And then there are all of those people who are addicted that are much worse than I was and that they need a meeting every day. They need it. And without it, uh, they lose their, their way on the path to sobriety and to a happy life. And so there's a lot of cyber meetings going on. I've been, I've been talking to some friends uh, recently who are figuring out ways to try and combat this isolation because isolation is, is where you go when you're an addict, you know, your self-loathing puts you into isolation. Um, you don't, you, you get tired of, of, of pretending and of telling lies and of blaming others, you know, and so you end up isolating yourself and just doing your drug and feeling horrible about everything, about yourself in the world. And, and that requires more drugs to help get you away from that for a few minutes uh, before it comes back in an even bigger wave. I mean, it's just a terrible cycle. So I don't know. I mean, I, I know it's really hard. Uh, for people who are trying to, to find sobriety and stick to it today, I'm fortunately I'm beyond that stage. You know, I do a meeting every morning in the mirror. I, I, I wake up, I look in the mirror, and I know exactly who I'm looking at and what his disease is. Now, so from 
not that hard. Now, when you got sober, how long till you really felt your creativity started flowing again? Because you said you'd felt that you had lost that. Yeah. Uh, two years. Maybe two years. Uh, it was about two years before my wife started to trust me again. It was about two years before my creativity started to flow, before I started to trust myself uh, again and trust my sobriety that that maybe it wasn't just this hour or this afternoon I'm going to stay sober. Maybe I can actually, you know, start to just sort of relax and go, no, I think I think you're going to be able to stay sober for a few days at least. You know, it's not good to look down the road and say, I'm never going to use again. You've, you know, one day at a time, but, but, but you need to be able to relax and trust sort of like an actor needing to be able to, if you want to cry or be, uh, uh, emotional on camera, you can sabotage yourself by always trying to keep it at the surface where it's ready and available instead of trusting that when the time it's called for, it'll be there. And the same is true of your sobriety. You have to be able to trust that when things get tough, when things get really crappy in the world, or when my world falls apart, I'm trusting that I will make choices that will not lead me to, to back into my disease. You know, but that takes time. Like anything, it takes time and experience to learn to trust it. And so it's about two years. And that's when my creativity started. I could trust my, my impulses again. Um, I could trust myself around people who had seen me take this dip and were now trusting me to, to be back where I was, if not better. Um, it's a process, you know? Now, when you came back, I mean, when you got sober, did you start taking class again, or had you stopped class? Or, I mean, how is it? Because you've acted for so long, and, you know, you've been, you know, you were a star. Do you still take class? Do you still sit there and say, you know, I need to, to flex my muscles outside of the camera and the director saying what to do? I didn't do that. Some people do, and it's a, it's a logical thing to do, and I think it's probably really a good thing. I had a production company. I had a theater. I was, I, produced, I was producing 60 different productions over the course of 10 years. I started doing more theater, which meant every day I was exercising those muscles, re-familiarizing myself with creativity, with uh, the freedom that was required to be able to do theater and know how to, how to bring it to a theater media as well as to uh, a, a smaller television media or a, you know a, a film screen to understand the, the the milieu that you're working in and and so I was getting what you get in an acting class but in spades I was I was working the muscles you know and I kept doing and I've, I've always done it that's your initial question today was how, how's this layoff that's really what bothers me the most I mean I haven't felt I haven't wondered you know, there's a moment of wonder where you go, geez, do I still know how to do this? Until the last few months. It's like, well, I'm not doing it. Do I still know how to do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. But it's uh, it's disconcerting. I'm used to, like, going to the gym every day. You know, I'm used to going to the set every day. Now, you directed a few episodes of Trapper John and one of Touched by an Angel. Did you ever want to pursue directing because you are very knowledgeable of acting and, and you've, you know how it works. And I, I, I always think that actors who direct 
bring that much more to it because they know what the actor's going through. Did you ever want to choose that path at all or, or something that you didn't, you know, you're like, nah. No, I did. I, I did. I was tempted, you know, but I also understood that direct, as opposed to acting, uh, sometimes acting requires this much devotion and, and focus, but usually acting is a, you're one of the players on the team and it, it isn't a full-time marriage to the project. Um, and I, the times I've directed and the directors that I've known and or, or that I've hired to, to, to direct movies I've produced, it's a marriage. It's, it's 24-7 for months, if not longer. And uh, I just don't, I'm not willing to make that, I'm not happy making that sacrifice. I love my career in relation to the rest of my life. And I, I have to have a rest of my life for that to balance out. I love surfing. I love my family. I love being relaxed. I love time, free time to sit and uh, and consider the universe. You know, I'm I'm I, I'm not so ambitious or needing uh, attention or or success so much that I'm willing to sacrifice the happiest parts of my life in order to get it. I love I love theater, and I love to go spend two or three months doing a play, which I did six months ago um, down at the Laguna Playhouse. I did uh, The Lion in Winter, one of the best plays of all time, and had a great time with Francis Fisher, and it was great. But it was a couple of months, you know, and and that's the kind of gigs that I love. I love devoting myself for a period of time, and then I'll go to a surf camp at Magdalena Bay down on Baja and I'll devote myself to that for a week or two. And then I'll come back and I'll devote myself to my granddaughter in uh, Portland for a week or two, you know, so I, I, that's my balance. That's what keeps me happy. That's my happy place. Now, when did your love of surfing start? And I know you're, you're a very avid surfer. Is that just because growing up in Catalina or when did this love of surfing start? And, and are you, I bet you're a really good surfer. Well, I was a pretty good surfer, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm 70 years old now, so uh, you pull back a lot. Um, and the endurance and all those things, uh, you know, I have to I have to keep in mind my age because I, mentally I feel 30, but I know I'm 70. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'll get caught in, if I go out and surf that's uh, too big for me and I get caught inside on a, on a big set and there's six or seven waves and that's it. I'm at the point now where I'm old enough that I may not have the endurance that I used to have to survive that. And certainly not have the endurance that's necessary to call that fun getting pounded uh, by six or seven waves for four or five minutes and nearly drown and make your way back in humiliated, you know, and, and lay on the beach and try to catch your breath again. I mean, that's, but I did start surfing when I was nine years old, 1959, in Catalina. It was before the Beach Boys and before it was like the first year of Surfer Magazine. And, and uh, you know, when I surfed on the backside of Catalina, there was nobody within 13 miles. It was Avalon to, to that surf spot was 13 miles. And I'd hiked it, you know, and carry a surfboard half the time. And my father would drive. He had a He'd drive me out there and drop me off with a couple of buddies. These guys were still my friends. And uh, we'd surf all day, 
never see a human being and uh and camp sometimes for weekends and eat spaghettios and and uh and and come back in on a sunday night go back to school for five days and go back out and camp again i just fell in love with it i fell in love it's a drug it's like it's an ad it's an addiction the moment you finish it, it's just like cocaine. The moment you finish it, you want to do it again. You want to do it again. Oh, that was great. Let's do it again. It's, it's a drug. You know, and, and riding a wave is, is it's a really healthy drug if you, if you uh, put it in the right context, you know, in your life. And, uh, and it always has stayed there for me. It's always been a, a beautiful respite for me from anything else in the world that's that may be getting me down, but, but I've seen it. I've seen it turn people into much less than they could have been or should have been or wanted to be. So it's like any drug, you know, it's some, some drug, everybody has a drug of choice that they can't control. Uh, For me, that was cocaine. It's not surfing. Surfing has always been a good thing in my life. Now you've had a very long career and I always crack up because Whenever my wife Joanne sees you on Hallmarks or anything, that's what my wife does. When when any of my guests have been on any show, I'll hear from the yeah. other room, "Hey, honey, it's it's Gregory Harrison," or you know, "Hey, it's it's Spencer Garrett," or anyone, you know. And it's just it's always so funny. Yeah. But uh, how did you get involved with the Hallmark movies? And we were wondering, what is the pro? Is that a quick shoot? And where do they shoot? Because you can't tell. It is interesting that you can't tell because most of their stuff shoots up in the Northwest or in, in Canada, in, in uh, BC, Vancouver, Vancouver Island, the city of Vancouver. Some of their stuff shoots elsewhere. I've shot a couple of Hallmark movies in Colorado, one in Toronto, but a lot of Canadian productions because Canada gives such good incentives to shoot lower budget films up there, you know, and then they save you, uh, you know, a fourth or a fifth of the budget that it would cost to make the same movie in the States somewhere. But uh, I first did a, I guess I did a Hallmark movie about 10, 12 years ago and, and it did well and you become a part of their repertory company. It literally, I mean, they have, as you can see, if you look at their schedule, they use the same people a lot. Getting into that group is probably a really uh, big goal for a lot of actors. I was lucky. I got into it and I've done, 10 or 12 uh, Hallmark films over the years, three or four Christmas movies. I've also done uh, two series for them. I'm doing Chesapeake Shores. I do a recurring role on Chesapeake Shores. Treat Williams and I play brothers. And uh, that's been going for four years now. And uh, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, Martha Williamson's series on there. I've been playing the father of the lead character for four or five years. So we do four, three or four movies a year of that. Well, it's funny about that one because I don't know. I was, I said, my wife, I always crack up. She goes from like, she watches that show, Big Brother. She watches Hallmark. She watches MSNBC and she watches Discovery ID. And that's like her, it's like the most vast guys. But it's funny because yeah. I walked by the other day and I guess they're playing older ones that she really didn't see. And it was a science seal delivered. And I'm like, hey, is, is Gregory in this? And she's like, it just started. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah. now, now, what was a pair? Was that Hallmark or was that Lifetime? That was with Jeffrey Sherman, right? Yes, Jeffrey wrote, and uh, uh, that was that was like uh, ABC Family. Remember when ABC Family was a net, was a channel? 
And then I think it got bought by Saban, Mahaim Saban, and it became a different channel. But anyway, we made three of them. We made the first one, and it did incredibly well. It was like the most watched TV movie of that decade or something. And so they said, let's do another. And we did another one. First one was shot in, in uh, Hungary, and uh, the second one was shot in Prague. And then we did a third one about five years later uh, in Puerto Rico, in which I finally surfed as the character. I'm like a, a rich... It's, it's sort of the plot of, of uh, The Sound of Music without the music. It's I'm a rich CEO and I hire the nanny to become my children's nanny. And then we fall in love and, and we're flying all over the world. And, uh, you know, it was one of those kind of things. Now, but it was so much fun to shoot. What made it so fun? Just because it was the location probably helped. Yeah, but... it was the location. I mean, the people were great. We had a nice cast. We had good people, still friends. But uh, oh, being on location in Europe, um, we, and we were shooting, and I'm playing a rich guy, so we're shooting in castles <laughs> and airplanes and castles and and balloons and and in the most beautiful countryside ever that i've ever seen anywhere you know and and in prague we're in in hungary we were in budapest and and the whole time we're shooting i'm touring both sides of the river and meeting all these interesting people and i'm i'm a real political guy you know i love politics and i love sociology and so we have a, a hungarian crew you know this was in 99 i think there was the first movie was in 1999 and they just, the, the, the wall had gone down in what was it? 89 or 90. And so I could get this perspective from the locals that I was with all day, every day. We could talk about how has your world changed since the wall came down and you quit being part of the Soviet bloc. And, and, and I love understanding that kind of stuff. I love getting an inside feel every country I travel. And so we, we had that too. And it was a really interesting time in the world. Now, through your career, what would you say some of your favorite acting jobs was? What was the one where you played the male stripper? What was that? What was that called? For ladies only. <laughs> I thought it was called a night in, night in heaven. No, I guess okay. I think that was Chris Rackets. How did you end up? I mean, what was it like playing a stripper? I mean, did you, did you look back and go? I mean, what was it like sh- shooting that? Because I heard you became a huge gay, uh, icon in the gay community. Yeah, I wasn't aiming for that audience, but I got them. And, and uh, it was that was the most popular TV movie in history at that time. And my poster from that movie, um, the one you referred to earlier, I think I was told by the company that made it that it was the second most popular poster ever behind the Farrah Fawcett oh. erect nipple poster. <laughs> <clears throat> Which is some claim to fame, huh? But... Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was it, it was my first production for my production company. I just created Catalina Productions. And I went to NBC. I didn't even have a script. My partner and I went to NBC and, and said, and they had a picture of me. I, I had taken a picture with a towel wrapped around me. And we put it on a big billboard and said, for ladies only on it. Um, and... And I, I brought it out. I uncovered it. I had a sheet over it. I uncovered it in the office where I'm pitching the movie. And I said, this is the movie that I want to make for NBC. And they and I said, we don't have a script yet. 
but he's a male stripper. And like one year earlier, Chippendales had opened with the first male strip club in the world, right? And they just went, we don't need a script, sure. And I had a deal for my first movie from my production company immediately. No script, nothing. And then we hired a writer. They gave us some money to, to develop it with. We hired a writer. And I came up with this storyline because when I was struggling in Hollywood, it was the story of a stripper who, of a guy, an actor, who's in New York studying acting, wants to be a legit actor so bad. He's studying serious, serious drama. And one of the guys in class is, is uh, it was played by Mark Singer. Uh, you know, he's making money at night. And he's saying, hey, man, you should come with me. I'm working at this club. And it's really great. And, uh, you know, all you got to do is, like, have your shirt off, you know, and you can carry your surf drinks to all these chicks, nothing but chicks in the, in the club. And, and I said, oh, man, I'm starving. Yeah, sure, okay. Uh, if that's all it is, sure. And I go, and, of course, you know, all about Eve, one night the, the head stripper doesn't show up, and they throw me on stage, and I'm a smash. So, so now I'm, like, on the cover of People magazine, uh, you know, within a few months as this – stripper and i can't buy an audition you know i'm now my acting career has gone totally out the window because i have legitimized myself as a stripper what this is all based on was that in when i first got to hollywood when i was pounding the pavement i I, i've been writing songs and doing music i'd learned to play the guitar in the army i'd go to the troubadour every monday night for hootenanny night you'd stand in line in the afternoon get yourself a 15 minute slot and i'd go there and i'd I'd sing my song that I'd written. And I was just hoping that somebody would give me a, you know, some producer, because Chrysalis Records, all these different people, all these execs would be there. And they'd come up and hand me a card, a business card. And I'd get, I'd, I'd, I'd finally start my music career. And so that's all I was waiting for every Monday night. And every Monday night, I'd get four or five guys coming up to me and handing me the business cards. And I'd be so excited until I'd look at the cards. And they were porn producers. <laughs> And I and I would I, so I I'd always go Jesus you know if I could just get a legit producer but the, the the idea that no if I did that I would never you know it would haunt me it would haunt me my whole career so I never did it but I always liked toying with the idea of what if I had what if I had so this was a chance for me instead of porn I was stripping because because that was the new big thing at the time in 1980. And uh, and I took the, the the script from that and and hired a guy to write it. But it was I created the whole story. The movie was a huge smash. My company got for three or four more films developed out of it. So it did everything it was supposed to do. But those the, the scenes and the pictures from that movie have followed me around to the point now that just just three days ago I got on IMDb and I'm like looking at. Because I just came out, and movie I'm in just came out called *The Vanished* with Peter Facinelli and uh, and a really great cast, Anne Hage, a couple others. And uh, and I'm looking, and I'm looking at the cast. There's a picture of Peter and Anne and all these different people, and then there's a picture of me. It's from for ladies only. It's me in what we called my Z-string, was I'd stripped down from Zorro to a G-string with a Z on the on the front. And that's the picture they're using on IMDb now. So, so it's like 35, 40 years later, I'm still, I'm still defined by that, you know, but so it goes. I mean, you can't argue with success, I guess. Yeah, just tell me, no, uh, tell me about the vanish. Grateful. 
Tell me about The Vanished. Tell me about the movie The Vanished. Well, um, Peter Facinelli and my daughter, Lillian Harrison, who's an actor, um, are engaged. And they're, they're going to get married. They were planning on getting married sometime in the last few months, but that all changed when this COVID hit. So that's down the road somewhere. But Peter, uh, like last, last winter, uh, early in the end of, ni- of, of uh, 2019, uh, was was making this movie based on a script he'd written, and uh, and he asked me if I'd come in and play a psychiatrist in it, uh, working with this couple that has lost their child. So and and Lily's got a role in it too. My daughter's got a role in it too. So I flew down to uh, uh, Tallahassee. I think it was Tallahassee. No, I can't remember. Alabama somewhere. And and for like two days and shot a couple days on this film and. It's a great script. It's a thriller, kind of a mystery whodunit thriller, and uh, and uh, it's it just came out. They, they were going to release it in theaters, but it just came out uh, two days ago on uh, it being being streamed. It's the only way you can release a movie these days, you know. So uh, I haven't even seen it yet. I mean, they didn't have a premiere or anything, you know. But it's but it's gotten rave reviews and. Uh, Everybody's very excited about it now because uh, the reviewers all loved it. I think it got a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, is what I was just told. So now you, you said it's on streaming, which everything does stream now. The industry has changed, you know. As you said, when you saw Doris Day saying, "Oh, let's do that again," now yeah. it seems because of digital, people can just run and run, and you can just cut a scene and basically like cut and paste. Do you think that hurts the actor? when people study because before you know if you had kept going and you kept screwing up your scene everyone's getting pissed at you they're like come on and you're wasting film i mean how do you think that's changed the industry and the craft especially for young actors well it's changed for sure but it's reduced the amount of discipline required you know artistic discipline that can be a good thing somewhere some areas where discipline is you know, I really miss it from young actors. The discipline of theater, for instance, can can be you know is an invaluable uh, tool for actors who've never done theater. And you can really tell most of the time those who have and those who haven't. But on the other hand, because there is no such thing as as expensive film that we're wasting with forty takes, you just. You just digitally just just roll the camera and say, well, right, let's play. Let's do the scene 15 different ways, you know. And <laughs> there are directors who just say, forget the script. We know what the story is. Let's just, just play it. Just see what happens. And then you're right. They can cut and paste. They'll say, well, that moment really worked. Let's use that. Let's put that with that. And you end up with, I think, some of the most naturalistic and surprising turns in scripts. But it requires everybody being on the same page in terms of what project are we shooting you know are we all doing the same movie you know is one person doing a farce and the other one's doing a serious drama <laughs> you know or or are we all together on that so that's where the director becomes more valuable than ever in my opinion you know is to make sure is to keep everyone on that same page to keep everyone synced up so that the advantages of having virtually no lights required Having uh, uh, 
you know, little little bullet cameras that can be placed all over. You can get 15 different angles at once if you want. You can have microphones, you know, body mics and microphones hidden everywhere that, that are never visible. You can shoot on any kind of natural location. All those things are just, and, and film, I mean, or not film, but uh, digital uh, footage. Uh, you know, they can, they can, you can, out, out of a eight millimeter, out of a, that ages myself, you can make films out of an iPhone that are pretty damn good. I've seen some, exceptionally good, some of them. So I think there's actually more advantages and disadvantages in the way the business has turned now. And there's four or 500 channels. Right. And they're all making, and they're all making product. They're not paying anything much for it because there's so many channels now that most of the time, I mean, that's what's, that's, that's the, the, what it's done to the business. And it may have happened anyway without digital and, and all that, but is the middle class of actors has pretty much ceased to exist. You have the big players, big money players, and then you have everybody working for scale and acting isn't their prime gig. You know, they're hobbyists talented hobbyists but hobbyists they can't support themselves strictly on a on an actor's paycheck and i have the you know i i was lucky i i've never done anything since i got that first gig i've never done anything for money but act and i'm i think i'm the last generation that's going to be able to say that i always hear that yeah it's crazy even the commercials and stuff like that has just changed now, with your acting, when are you going to feel comfortable to go back to work? Like if someone said, hey, Gregory, you know, we're shooting a, a project uh, in Prague or, you know, Croatia, which I was over for my honeymoon. Croatia was beautiful. Um, oh, wow. If you uh, if they were saying that, how long do you get back up? Because you haven't left the house. Do you feel safe yet? No, I don't feel safe in that sense. I, I feel safe because I know that I will be. Uh, careful and am careful always thoughtful about who I'm exposing and who I'm being exposed by um, but I, I'm not going to get on an airplane not yet you know I've been asked to like I said asked to fly up to uh, to Canada in the middle of next month and uh, I'll consider it you know, we'll see how the world is then. But right up until the day that I'm going to leave, I'll probably be second guessing or, or trying to figure out maybe I, maybe it's safe if I drive. I mean, I did order one of those mattresses for the back seat of my car on Amazon. <laughs> you know, that has the little that fills the wheel or the uh, the footwells. Right. You know, back seat so that you can lay flat on it, just in case I have to drive somewhere overnight and I don't want to stay in a hotel. You know, and I don't want to. You know, I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting one of those uh, bathroom containers that you can use your own bathroom and just store it until you get to a place where you feel safe dumping it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, just silly don't as that is, don't. silly as that is. Have you been in a in a gas station bathroom lately? You don't want to be there. I haven't been anywhere, and you know, we're really screwed. Our first anniversary is September thirteenth. We had planned to go somewhere nice, you know, just for a few days. Now I think we're going to drive out to Watkins Glen because I heard it's very, they're very friendly and it's nice. And there's, you know, vineyards yeah. and falls, but it's just, it's crazy. I haven't seen this stuff and I'm the same way. I'm like, I, my friends are like, yeah, come on, let's, we're going out. I don't want to go out. I, I, I sit there, I go, you know what? Yeah. 
I'd rather pick up food, come home. I have my own beer. I'm not paying $6 a bottle. I right. don't have to tip. We tip the person when we pick it up, though, just because right. they're working their asses up. And unlike California, New Jersey, servers only make $2.25 an hour, which is complete bullshit. But, um, yeah. but so, yeah, so I'm the same way. It's just, it, it's just, it's weird. And I think, you know, people, I, I'm not going to go into it, but I just don't understand, like, you know, I do, I do, I have a business job and people are like, oh, you come to this uh, big networking thing. I'm like, no, if I'm going to, if I'm going to take a chance and go out, it's not going to be hanging out with you schlubs. I'm going to go out with my friends. And it's not going to be, right. that's what people don't get. I mean, so for you, I mean, it's, it must be weird. I mean, even your set life, I mean, going on set would probably be completely different. Yeah, you create, I think they're creating mini bubbles in a set too. So that you have your like your makeup team, your hair person, makeup person. You have your assigned people, those two people that can come can approach you. One wardrobe person that can approach you. And they can't approach the other actors, they can't approach anybody else. And you get these little bubbles on the set that's a big bubble. So that everybody's using the same vans, everybody's in the same hotel room, nobody's going out uh, at night or you know, when 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 you're not filming, no one's uh, exposing themselves to civilians outside of the bubble it's sort of like what they're doing with the with the basketball teams and the baseball teams and even that it's no guarantee i mean you, you see you know baseball but what was it the the marlins had like oh, 21 players yeah. that were, uh, it was that were exposed to covid i i have i have one more question for you then we'll wrap it yeah. up how long do you think you'll act if i mean would you i mean let's say you live to 95 how would you be acting till the very end, man? Or are you ever going to sit there and go, you know what? I'm I'm going to start making it a little bit as a hobby. I mean, what what is what is your future in that? I suspect I'll act until the day I drop, because I do love it. I really love it. I don't love doing things that aren't challenging, but I've been. If I don't get challenged, I challenge myself. You know, I, I I'm capable of making opportunities happen for roles that still, that I haven't been there before. I haven't done that thing before. Um, uh, I, I do books on tape. I do these hybrid I do radio plays. I do hybrid kind of work that is an interesting combination I may not have done before. So I'm learning something, you know, and I'm experimenting. And as long as I keep doing that, I'll keep at really do love performing i still think like that little boy who watched movies at five years old and always sat in the front row of the of the casino ballroom movie theater over in catalina so i could watch the movie from periphery to periphery and it and i would look at it and go this is magic they create something out of nothing they make me feel things out of nothing they create it they're magicians and i still as I'm inspired by acting as I was back then. And to be a magician was always my dream. And that's my way of doing it. Well, I want to thank you. This was great. Uh, people, go look up Gregory Harris on IMDb. Look at his movies. Rent, stream The Vanishing. He, it's going to be his son-in-law. So you got to stream, you know, the son-in-law. It makes him, you know, yeah. feel good. Uh, also, people, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter at Cooper Talk, Instagram at Cooper Talk One. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't remember, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.